Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Piki mai kake mai and a big welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance Tene. Later on tonight, we'll hear how light can be used to detect art forgeries and to fingerprint milk. But first up, new homes for baby power. Power, or abalone as they're known overseas, were in the headlines in the aftermath of the damaging Kaikoura earthquake in November 2016. The one to six metres of uplift along that coastline left much of the intertidal zone high and dry, including lots of power. People mounted rescue operations to move stranded animals back down to the water. That's because we Kiwi love power. Or at least, we love to eat them. Now power scientist Ren Naylor from Niwa is showing baby power a little love in return by trialling safe houses for them. Before the houses were shipped down to Kaikoura for testing there, Ren ran a small experiment on Wellington's south coast, and on an extremely calm day during a king low tide, I went to join him. We're checking some concrete um, power habitats that we put out two months ago. We put them out with um, 50 hatchery red power in them that were about, on average, about 30 millimetres long. So we're just checking to see how many of them are still there and how many are still in the kind of local environment. So you've got two divers in the water? Well, paddlers really, Alison. It's low tide, it's pretty shallow, so, yeah. How many of these have you got in the water? Uh, We've got 12 here, yeah. And do you want to describe one to me? They're basically concrete blocks and they're the shape I suppose of an upside down oven tray made out of concrete that's 40 mils thick Um, they're about 300 mils long and about I don't know 250 wide and 100 mils high and they've got little entrances um, in the sides. They're designed to mimic under boulder habitat which is the habitat that juvenile power like because when they're young they don't like the light and they live under rocks, you see. So these are designed to to basically mimic that habitat. So they're designed to be a perfect powerhouse? Pretty much. They were designed to try and get an index of recruitment in an area, right? To try and see the number of little power that are around. And you can do that if you just go out. Um, into rock balls and turn the boulders but the problem with that is that all the boulders are different sizes right and if they're too big you actually can't turn them over so the idea was to design a standardized structure so that they're all the same size that would attract little power between about 40 and 80 mils from the surrounding habitat and you could easily monitor them you just go out turn them over count them put them back 
and we empower uh, about that length, say 40 to 80 millimetres, in two or three years' time they will recruit to the fishery, which means basically they'll be 125 millimetres long. So it's really, they were designed to to try and tell us how many in an area would be coming through into the fishery in two or three years' time. So that was what they were designed for, and they seem, we've put a couple out, and they seem to work really well for doing that. The little guys like them. Um, and then we thought, I was talking with the industry guys, we thought that because there'd been quite a lot of habitat loss at Kaikoura, and probably a lot of juveniles associated with that habitat had also been lost. We could put some there to, A, create habitat, and, B, it would mean that we could put reseeded juveniles there and they'd have somewhere to live. So this is what this is trialling, whether that's going to be an effective way to reseed power. So turning it from a research house into an emergency housing situation. Yeah, something like that, Alison, something like that, yeah. So we're doing two pilots. This is the first pilot on the south coast just to see if they work. And it appears from what we've seen so far that the little guys, you know, they were 20 to 30 mils. They don't stay in there for that long. And it's probably the habitat inside the concrete blocks... um, just isn't complex enough for them you know they like to be in smaller cracks Um, but we'll once we've checked these we'll search as much as we can um, all the boulders around them and it's so to see how many are still alive basically because it doesn't matter if they come out of these things and live somewhere else the main thing is that they survive and when you put reseeded power out the the most dangerous time for them really is the first two or three days. That's when most of the predation happens and it's when they're most vulnerable. Yeah, so if we decide that this has worked well enough, we'll do another little pilot in Kaikoura where we'll do effectively the same thing, but we'll also put some out, not sure how many yet, but at a couple of sites to look at recruitment to see how many juveniles are coming back there and to monitor that over time. So this should be 10, Tom. It's not a bad haul. The mesh across the bottom, Alison, is for a couple of things. What happens when you turn a boulder over with juvenile power on it is that a lot, or just about most of the power, actually let go, and they fall into the water. So you've got mesh across the bottom just to stop yeah, them yeah, falling out. Yeah, yeah, basically to try and stop them falling out, but also to stop big predators getting in if these things aren't placed on an even surface on the bottom. So you're not going to have a closer look at what's in there, Pete? Yep, I'm having a closer look. I've opened up the uh, netting, and here's a beautiful decorator crab. Not part of the study, can go no. back out to sea. Yep, yep. <laughs> Two fifteen mil. Wild, yeah. Wild. Yeah, so the wild ones from the from around here are starting to go into the Mallison. And how do you know that they're your power? Have you tagged them in some way? No, well we have tagged some of them actually. But you can see the colour, they're quite bright blue turquoise. Oh they're and gorgeous. The, yeah, yeah. So that's from the um, food they're fed in the hatchery, so you find they're quite distinct. What do you feed them to turn them that amazing turquoise blue colour? 
I think they call it macra, which is a casein milk sort of based um, food. And they certainly come out that really nice colour. There's uh, rumours that if they eat uh, macrocystis seaweed, they come out very blue, and if they eat other different seaweeds, you get the different colours. So that's uh, a possible explanation. Yeah. So quite a few cat's eyes in there too, Alice, and, and a little um, a little sea urchin, a little canna. So you're just noting how many are in each one at the moment? Yeah, yeah, pretty much, Alison. But we'll have to search this whole area to see what sort of overall survival of the reseeds we have. So this should be number six, Tom. How long are you leaving them here for? These have been here for two months now, Alison, yeah. So there were 50 in each when we put them out, and it went down to... Oh, about 20% relatively quickly over about, you know, two or three weeks and seems to be at about 15% of what we we put in. Right, so there's two... Two of ours. Three wild. Yeah, three wild, about what? Between 20 to 50 mil. What eats baby power? Anything, Alison. Um, a starfish fish. They're quite vulnerable at that size. Hence the need for habitats for them. Yeah, that's right. And that's why they they like living under boulders where things can't get at them. And it's why we've made these entrances around the sides as small as possible. Two of those wild power in that habitat are motoring around yeah. quite fast. Yeah, what you notice when you turn them over is that the wild power take off really quickly. But the hatchery red ones, even now, just sit there. And that's probably because... Um, in the hatchery and when we've been holding them at Niwa they've become accustomed to light whereas the wild ones have always been under boulders and if they come out into the light they um, they don't like it whereas the, the hatchery guys just don't know the difference really It's amazing no. they pick up these different behaviours that early Yeah, yeah, no it is and I, I think it probably does make them, at least initially in the first two or three days, it makes them more vulnerable to predation than, um, than natural power. So they haven't been exposed to predators. So, so. so you've been working with power for a long time, though? Yeah, quite a long time, Alison. Probably about 91 when I first started. So, so what have you learned over that time? Well, we've learned quite a bit about growth rates and maturity. We've tagged a lot of them in a lot of places around the country. Does it vary much around the country? Yeah, no, it does vary quite a lot. You know, places like Wellington, um, growth is pretty fast. Around Wellington, say most of the Marlborough Sounds, the Outer Sounds and Stewart Island, it takes about five years for them to get to legal size of 125 mils. But around Banks Peninsula, it probably takes about eight years. But there's also quite a lot of variation, actually, within um, a population at a site. And it means, actually, that if you look at length, frequency, distributions, you can see quite often in a population neat little cohorts. And with power, you can see those for the first, I don't know, two or three years. But because of the growth variation after that, um, it all just merges um, you know, into one one big size class that you can't, you know, you just can't pick out individual cohorts. So there's a lot of variation in growth. Um, 
it probably also varies from year to year. And there's also quite a lot of variation in length of maturity as well. So most places around New Zealand, 50% of the population is probably mature at about 90 millimetres. And places like Taranaki, they tend to mature much smaller, um, you know, can be about as low as about 60 or 65 millimetres. But they don't grow very big in Taranaki, you see. So it probably means, although there's no proof, that maturity is age-related rather than length-related because, obviously, the ones in Taranaki, you know, just grow really slowly, so, you know, they'll be four, three or four years old when they're only about 60 mils long, whereas a power from Stewart Island, you know, will be about 90 mils at that age, so... Yeah. And what size are people allowed to legally harvest them? Uh, it's 125 around most of New Zealand. Um, in Taranaki, it's, they reduced it a few years ago to 85 millimetres. And that was, that's because they don't get much bigger than that. So why don't they get bigger there? Is it just that there's less food for them? It's probably a combination of things, Alison. It's hard to, hard to nail it. It probably does relate to food, the quality of the food. It might also be a temperature-related thing. It's a lot warmer up there. So power have a copper-based blood system called haemocyanin, and above about 20 degrees it loses its oxygen-binding um, ability. So there are physiological things associated with warm water, but you don't get as much big algae growing in warm water either. Um, and up there there's also, it's usually pretty rough and there's a lot of sediment in the water quite often, so it's possible also that, you know, the sediment clogs their gills a bit. So I think it's a combination of all those things. It's just really hard to tease out. But it's almost certainly not a genetic thing because if you shift power from areas where they're stunted into areas of good growth, they'll start growing again. Thanks, Ren. That was Ren Naylor from Niwa, and we also heard from diver Peter Notman. Although I have to say the tide was so low that he wasn't really diving, it was more like paddling. Kate Fakaronga mai kwe kito tato au hori hori, he hotaka e panaki a papa tuanuku tangaroa meirangi nui. I'm Alison Balance with your weekly dose of New Zealand science from our changing world, and now. Using the power of light to make the invisible visible. That's what Michelle Nevote does. She's a researcher in the Photon Factory in the School of Chemical Sciences at the University of Auckland, and she tells me how she works on everything from milk to works of art. My job is to try and extract the information in materials, information about the molecules themselves using light. So we basically use light to extract that information and then we use data analysis methods called chemometrics, which is a way of taking a whole bunch of data and extracting the information from that data. And what we're hoping to do is to uncover hidden information about these materials in this picture that we record. So what kind of materials are you working with? 
because light interacts with this matter and we can measure signals from this, we can look at a variety. So we've been working on with the art gallery, for example, here in Auckland, looking at paints, paint fragments, understanding why art materials or why paints deteriorate, why paint flakes off of paintings. We've even applied um, our method to look at, to determine whether a painting's a fake or not. So we can tell a lot about the, the materials inside the art materials. And then the other extreme is looking at biological materials. For example, human tissue or skin tissue, um, and also polymers and geological materials, minerals, fluid inclusions. So it's got a wide application. Yeah. That's covered just about everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So what happens if someone at the art gallery comes to you with a question and they go, mm, not sure whether this is the real thing or whether it's a fake? What do you do? Fortunately, the method that we use is non-invasive and non-destructive. So if the painting is not too humongous, they can bring it along, and they have done sometimes. And we can put the painting as it is on our microscope stage, and we can focus some light onto it. And we can analyze a tiny one to two micron area. So that's a very tiny one thousandth of a millimeter area. And look at different parts of this art material. So if they, for example, say, we're not sure that this is a fake or not. So we'd say, okay, when did you expect it to be painted? We sort of find out more of what materials we could perhaps identify and look for. We actually managed to identify a fake Lindauer because Lindauer painted only at a, he ceased painting it around 1918, 1920. And before that, all the white pigments in paints were mostly lead carbonates, whereas this painting had titanium dioxide, and that was only used after 1941. So using this way, we can probe these molecules and say, hang on, that's not lead carbonate, that's titanium dioxide. It must be a fake. So, yeah, that kind of example. How do you tell the difference between two things then? So what is it about your technique that can let you say, ah, this is A and not B? So molecules are always vibrating. At room temperature, you'll see that if you had to sort of zoom in onto a molecule, you'd see that it was undergoing a whole bunch of movements at the same time and stretching, bending, rotating. And those vibrations, there'll be a set of them and they'll be occurring at a specific frequency. And that frequency is determined by the atoms in the molecule and how they're bonded together. So the set of frequencies that a molecule vibrates at is determined by what that molecule is made of and how it's put together. And so we can measure those frequencies by letting it interact with light. And that's how we determine what it is and how it's behaving. Okay, so molecule A might just be more jiggly and always jiggle in this particular kind of frequency compared to the other one. Exactly. And that can tell us even, for example, if you have some things of the same composition. So say, for example, with titanium dioxide, which is a white pigment used in paint, you can get different crystal forms of this material. And because they're in a different crystal form, the molecules are arranged differently. And so the energy environment is different. And because of that, they will interact with light differently. So if you had to analyze the actual elements in this, you'd say, well, it has titanium and it has oxygen. But if we look at the molecules' vibrations, we can say that is a rutile form of titanium dioxide, and this is the anatase phase. So you can actually identify different forms or polymorphs of these materials. So you said you use it to also help you find hidden properties in something. Can you give me an example of that field that you're working in at the moment? 
So an exciting project that I've been working on for a while is the Milk Fingerprinting Project. And this is in uh, partnership with the Primary Growth Partnership Program, which is with Fonterra. And they would like to see whether they can use light to probe their milk and say, what hidden qualities have we got in our milk that one normally wouldn't uh, find um, using the normal analysis method? So routinely, Fonterra tests their milk. So they will have a truck that will collect milk from the farm, and when this truck collects milk, they collect two vials of milk. And these two vials are sent off to Milk Test New Zealand, and this is from all over the country. They're RF tagged. One of those vials will be used for testing for bugs, etc., and the other will be used for testing for fat, protein, lactose. And this is done routinely. And the testing of the fat, lactose, protein, etc., is done using infrared spectroscopy because it's such a quick method and it's pretty accurate. But what they would like to now do is can we find information about the types of protein in the, in the milk or the types of fat? Because if the types of proteins in milk, you don't just get a protein, you get alpha lactoglobulin, uh, beta lactoglobulin, alpha lactaldebin, you get the caseins, you get different forms. And each of these would have properties that would be better for making cheese, for example. So if you change the relative or amounts of these proteins, how does it affect the milk? Some fatty acids are really healthy and may be desirable to have more of those in milk. And this is linked to what the cow eats. So if we can analyse the information in this milk, then we can perhaps get healthier milk. Because New Zealand's milk is quite unique um, compared to the rest of the world. Most of our cows are pasture-fed, and that does have an effect on the quality of the milk. So what I've been working on is taking these infrared spectra that have been measured and using uh, data analysis methods or chemometrics to try and extract from, the, from this data information about these minor components, the variations. And so that's an example of yeah, how we would use this information to, to get more information or the hidden information in milk that we don't know yet. <laughs> and then Fonterra and the farmers might be able to relate that back to, gosh, those cows were feeding on this particular crop. Exactly. So That's we the liked idea. the effect of that, so maybe we'll do that more often. Precisely, yes. And perhaps even get some more information about the health of the cows. Or, you know, the, 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 this breed of cow has this particular kind of milk. Or because this cow lives in this part of New Zealand, it has this particular quality. Or So there's a lot of factors that affect the milk. And sort of how much can we learn about that using spectroscopy? You can get a lot of information by analysing your milk in a laboratory, but it's very time-consuming and it's very expensive and you have to, it takes a long time to do this. So whereas spectroscopy, you can record a spectrum in about a minute or less and you can get a lot of information from that. The trick is to be able to extract that information in an accurate way. Yeah. So is this part of the Milk on a Disc project that I've heard about? So the Milk on a Disc project has kind of branched off from this the concept was designed by David Williams and Katha Simpson. And so they came up with this idea of analysing or getting information out of milk for each individual cow as opposed to taking a sample that comes from the vat of milk and analysing this. Now you can actually get information from each cow. Milk's one important primary product for us. Wool is another one. Could you do something with wool using the same technique? You totally could. If there were properties in wool that you wanted to find that 
say, the lanolin contact or the type of proteins, I guess, in the wool, you could totally use this, this method, yes. Uh, I'm sure that's a good, good idea. <laughs> what are you working on now? We've just received an MBIE Smart Ideas Award to develop a handheld device that we can use spectroscopy with to instantly determine whether we have melanoma or skin lesions on your skin. And the idea is to be able to have this device and point it on your skin at a lesion and get an answer which says this is benign, this is melanoma, this is a non-melanoma skin cancer. Just started working on that, which is super exciting. What's your time frame? I mean, it sounds great. I'd like it sooner rather than later. It's it's just starting. It's a three-year funded project, um, and so the aim is to get this going. And the lead scientist on this is Kather Simpson. Um, I'll be doing a lot, most of the research, um, and we have a really cool team of dermatologists, plastic surgeon. We have a hepatobiliaric surgeon as well, and then we have a commercial partner, Pacific Channel. So are you being given a whole lot of samples of things where the, the, the experts will go, this is a melanoma, this is this kind of skin cancer, so that you've got a library to to look at to see how they all vibrate differently. Precisely. So we have our clinicians on our team who will be able to identify these and we will apply the spectroscopy to that and then we'll connect the two and build up uh, algorithms to be able to characterise what we see. And part of the key of this will be making something small and portable? Yes. The idea is to have it handheld, which is a challenge. Thanks, Michelle. Michelle Nevote is in the Photon Factory at the University of Auckland. And that's the show. If you'd like to listen again or check out some of our other stories, of which there are plenty, you can find us at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. We also hang out on your favourite podcast provider. Just search for RNZ Our Changing World. If you'd like to get in touch, we are RNZ Science on Facebook and Twitter. And our email address is ourchangingworld at radionz.co.nz. Thanks for your company. But for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marie. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.